Welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani Fossbinder. Like in nature, we see determined flowers and vines clinging to life and seeking light. So are Morning Glory people. And in this podcast, I'll interview writers, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, survivors, and thrivers, and trailblazers of all kinds. These are folks that have been determined to get over, under, around, and through the obstacles that face them, or to seize the opportunities that come before them. I find these people inspiring and amazing. I know you will too. You know, out in the world, it can be kind of harsh. (laughs) I welcome you to the Morning Glory Project. And today's topic is about that harsh world and how sometimes the critics that come from without and sometimes the ones that come from within can stop us from doing the things that we need to do to have a happy and healthy life. So I'm really happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project today, Marianne Ingheim. After suffering cancer and suicide loss, Marianne rebuilds her life with the help of self-compassion. In her book, Out of Love, Finding Your Way Back to Self-Compassion, she describes how the practice of self-compassion changed her life in ways big and small, inspiring readers to unlearn self-critical patterns in their own lives and live a happier, more courageous life. That sounds like a lovely thing, doesn't it? Marianne, I welcome you to the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. So Marianne, I've looked at your book now, and it's beautiful, by the way. I've looked at your book a bunch of times, particularly the title, Out of Love, Finding Your Way Back to Self-Compassion. And I want to ask you about how you arrived at both the title and the subtitle, because I'm intrigued by both of them. Why Out of Love? Well, that's interesting. I had originally titled it Unlearning, but my publisher didn't like that. Mm-hmm. That was my um, editor who came up with that title. And in a way, it it's kind of, you know, you can understand it in different ways. I'm writing this out of love for myself. And I also fell out of love with my mm-hmm. husband. So there's kind of a double meaning there. Yeah. I was wondering if that was the case because I, I, in reading through pieces of it, that's what I was wondering. And then I love the idea of finding your way back right. to self-compassion. That word back jumped out at me. Can you say what, why you included that and what that means to you? Yeah. So I think we learn to be self-critical. We're not born self-critical. If you think about a toddler who's learning to walk, um, they are going to learn to walk. They don't yet have an inner critic telling them, well, you know, this whole walking thing is just not working out for you. You should just give up. (laughs) In fact, I mean, a a toddler is the most confident person in the world, probably more confidence than sense, (laughs) right? They, They have that. They'll try anything. They'll try whatever they can do and they'll topple and fall and it's no big deal. Right. You know, and same thing with creativity. They're just curious and playing and, you know, they don't sit down and have this inner critic saying, okay, if you don't write this sentence perfectly, then you might as well give up, right? Like every four-year-old believes they're a great artist until they're about seven or eight when somebody tells them they don't know how to draw. Yeah. And it's really sad, you know, so I, I, that's how I envision this coming back to your 
your own, um, I mean, it is an innocence and of course we can't completely come go back to that place, but it's a place inside ourselves that I think in a way we never lose. It gets bogged down with all of these other critical voices that we hear externally and our inner own inner critic, which is something we've internalized from our primary caregivers. Or our community, or our classmates, or our teachers, or church, our the media. Yeah, everything. So tell me a bit about the story of your marriage and how that prompted you toward this re-embracing of your own self-compassion. Um, yeah, so let's see, where should I start? I, I'd been married for almost 10 years. This was in 2017. And, well, let me back up to August of 2016. I was diagnosed with cancer. And that served as a sort of wake-up call for me. It jarred me into this, like, wow, I'm not living the life I feel I was meant to live. Hmm. Uh, I'm not fulfilling the purpose. Um, it, it's it's weird, but it just, it, that's what cancer did for me. You know, I, I wonder, you know, we're recording this right now at a time of COVID-19 when people are in shutdown mode and things are so precarious. And I'm hearing this a lot. I'm hearing a lot of people both given time to reflect and also kind of facing the possibility of their mortality or having lost others to COVID and other things that they're all sort of saying, okay, now wait a minute. (laughs) Am I living the way I want to be living? Right. I'm I'm newly acquainted with the finite nature of this life. Yeah. It, it totally, it just faces you, um, you know, and yeah, it could be cancer. It could be any time when we're, when we're faced with our mortality and we're faced with a lot of time to reflect. Which both COVID and cancer offer, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. And um, so as I was, it became very clear to me that I needed to make some changes. And one of those was that I hadn't been happy in my marriage in a long time. And that, that was such a horrible realization because you, you know, we were, we'd been married almost 10 years. Um, I mean, my husband was a good man and I had loved him, but he was also very controlling and didn't really believe that I was capable of doing things. And so then I didn't think I could do things um, like, you know, going back to school. He didn't think I should do that. And I kind of really wanted to do that. So I, I found myself living a small life, much smaller than I wanted. And it sounds like a life more controlled by somebody else's opinion than you wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but it was, it was, I agonized about how to tell him this. I mean, how do you tell someone who loves you and you've been married to for almost 10 years that you're leaving. And I knew it would break his heart and I didn't want to do that. Eventually though, it was like I had to. 
um, for my for myself and the person I wanted to be in the world. So I, I had some help with a therapist who eventually was like, you have to just tell him, um, tell him straight. And I did. We were sitting in a therapy session, the, both of us. And my husband got up and left. And that was the last time I saw him. Um, he was devastated. And as a result? Um, later that night, I got a call from the sheriff's department that he had crashed his car. And um, the next day I went to our apartment and I found a suicide note. Let me pause there for a second because I too am a survivor of suicide loss in my family three times actually and whenever there's a suicide of a friend or a loved one there's the feeling of what if what if only I had what if I didn't say that what if I did say that there's all this analysis most of which is irrelevant usually because somebody's in a private anguish that you don't know anything about but in this case I can see you have this almost direct cause and effect kind of moment. And I'm not, I'm not in any way, by the way, in any way implying that you are at fault. I'm saying that I can see why I can see how someone in your position might really feel responsible in such a moment. You agonized over telling them him this, you knew he was going to be heartbroken over it. And then he acted upon that heartbreak in a dramatic and impulsive and horrifying way. Right. Right. There there was no way I could say it wasn't related. <laughs> it was related. Like it wasn't my fault, but it was because of my words. And of course I thought, well, could I have said it differently? You know, and which is why I had a therapist help me because I was afraid of saying it in the wrong way. Marianne, you say, and I believe you, and I know it to be true, I, that you are not, you don't, you don't claim fault. Uh, you don't feel responsible for his death in that way. And yet I hear that at that time you might, you did feel that. Oh, I did. I, I felt a lot of guilt. And, you know, the question, would he still be alive if I had not said I was leaving him? I mean, that was very clear. Yes. Um, and that's really hard to to live with, you know, and, and in fact, I struggled with, well, why am I here? Why do I get to be here when he's not here? Hmm. How did you get through that period of time? How did you reconcile and separate out the difference between sort of the, the two events being related versus you being responsible for hmm. his death? How how did you get through that? You know, in the beginning, it was, it was, there's this kind of like uh, fog of grief that you go through in the beginning where it was just self-care. It was like, was I sleeping? Was I eating? Was I remembering to do what I needed to do today? Um, and just taking one step and then another step. And I joined a support group right away 
I could not have done it without my support group. And it was a support group for suicide loss. Um, mm. I, I tried out some bereavement groups, but there's something specific about suicide. I think so too. And, you know, we're recording this right now in Mental Health Awareness Month. Exactly. May. And that suicide is is related, of course, that. So it makes me wonder, of course, unable to diagnose your former husband, but to say that if he reached that conclusion so suddenly, my guess is that he had that fragileness all along, that he had that in him. You didn't put that in him the day that you said you were going to end your marriage because the average person if confronted with their partner leaving might argue or, or, or say, let's work it out or let's go to counseling or what can we do? You, I love you and I want to be with you. What do we need to change? And there was none of that. It was, you announced it, he left and that was that. Right. And I, in hindsight, I can see how he had started to go into depression. Um, prior, prior to this. And I, I, you know, I kicked myself because I didn't see it. Um, he was spending less and less time with friends. He was drinking more, you know, just kind of closing in on himself. And I can see it. Isn't hindsight cruel that way? You know, we hold ourselves responsible for not knowing, but it's only in the rearview mirror that those pieces come together. And you can say, oh, oh, now that makes sense. Oh, I should have seen that. And then you you kink it all up. Or I, I can say it this way. When I look at, at for example, my, my brother's loss, I, you know, the, his death came absolutely out of the blue to me. But when I, after it, after the fog, as you call it so aptly, released, then I was able to look back and sort of put pieces together and say, you know, that was a hint and that was a hint. And, and I'm a licensed therapist. I know hints, but there, it's, you can't see it when you're up close. When you love somebody, they're not so visible. And we nonetheless want to hold ourselves responsible for something that was going on inside of somebody else's existence. Mm -hmm. It seems so unfair <laughs> in a way, but it's, you know what I wonder, Marianne? Mm -hmm. I've come to wonder this. I sometimes think that we take responsibility for the suicide of somebody else, because it gives us at least a weird sense of control. Like the whole thing felt so out of control to have somebody lo to lose somebody that I love that way. And we don't like to feel out of control. So if I'm responsible, at least maybe I can control things. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird circular thing. Did you experience any of that? Um, well, I, I immediately felt responsible. So my work was trying to, I mean, even though intellectually I knew, you know, I, I don't believe that this is my fault, but I did not feel it. All of me felt like it was my fault, you know, and his family also thought it was my fault. So you had external voices blaming you too, in, in addition to your own internal doubt. Right. And I, and I lost that family which, you know, I'd known them for almost 10 years. So rather than being able to comfort one another, you had another layer of losses. Yeah. So how did you get through that? How You said you went to therapy. Right. How did you connect? Because I'm hearing the difference between your intellectual understanding of I'm not at fault, 
versus the feeling that you felt responsible. Mm -hmm. How did you get to the point where you could find self-compassion in that? That you could connect those two things? Yeah. Um, at some point after I got out of the fog, the initial fog, I, I began to want to make sense of it all. You know, all of this has happened within six months, the cancer, the um, leaving, decision to leave my husband is suicide. And so it was like, wait a minute, I need to try to make sense of this. And I really do believe that we we don't always get to choose what happens, but we get to choose what story we're going to tell about it. Oh, let's let's linger there for a second. We don't get to choose what happens, mm-hmm. but we get to choose what story we tell about it. And and I know that you're not meaning telling lies like false stories right. or myths, but what do you mean by what story we're going to tell about it? Well, I think story is one of the key ways we make meaning and we crave meaning. We want things to mean something. And so the story, it's not like something that's not based in reality, but there is a sense of being able to, you know, do I want to tell a story in which I'm the victim or in which I'm to blame for all these things? How is that going to help me or help anyone? And is it even true? Right, right. Is there another story that I can tell? And I have been, before all this, I had been um, reading a lot about self-compassion. I listened to Kristen Neff's um, interview and on Sounds True, and I'd read her book. And I had, and again, this was an intellectual thing. I was getting it conceptually, what self-compassion was and how important it was. But until I went through this, you know, this difficult time, I really hadn't felt what self-compassion means. So can you tell me in a concise way what self-compassion means to you? I mean, I, I think that those are words that I know the meaning of, everyone knows the meaning of, but but put together self-compassion, what does that mean to you? So, well, there are different ways I could say it. I could say what Kristen Neff calls it. I could say what most people call it. But for myself, it's finding belonging in yourself. Um, you know, we, we want to belong, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to belong. But in my case, I, I'd gone through so many years of my life trying to please and make sure I didn't disappoint and live after other people's um, expectations. Yeah. And that's not true belonging. Hmm. At some point, I, I learned or unlearned I guess <laughs> how to to find this belonging within myself and from that place I can go out into the world and have healthy relationships does that make sense well it does you know as you're talking here I'm kind of thinking about 
I, I had this weird image just come to mind. I was never a sorority girl or any of those kinds of things, so I'm, I'm not meaning to imply that. But it's as if if I have to become somebody different to be welcomed into your club, then even when you accept me, I, I don't really belong. I'm there. I may get to go to the sock hop or whatever it might be, but I'm not really there because I'm just the thing that I made myself to be to please you. Right. So we get to forever feel like we don't really belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I don't just do people pleasing, I don't fashion myself in an image that you want me to be, then if I'm accepted into relationship with you, I feel like I'm genuinely there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so it kind of starts with yourself. I mean, do I accept myself? Do I love myself? Do I let myself into my own sorority, (laughs) my own club? (laughs) We talk about how we want to be authentic. Well, do we even like ourselves? Before we can be authentic, I think we kind of need to like who we are, right? Flaws and all. Exactly. So, Mm. So that's what, and another this image I I like to describe self-compassion, the hammock of my heart. Um, Mm. The the poet Jane O'Shea has a poem about this. I, I see it as a place within myself that I can always go to and rest. Mm. Um, Resting in my own heart. It sounds like it's also self-acceptance. It is. It's a lot of it is self-acceptance. So the book that you've written is about, it's a, it's a workbook in a way. It has exercises and things that somebody can do to kind of work through this thinking, this feeling, this reconciling of ourselves in that way. And now it's three years later. And because this was 2017 that your first husband passed, tell me about your life now. Well, so I ended up going back to school. I'm in the middle of getting a PhD. I'm researching self-compassion. And I wrote this book. I remarried. And the the way this worked was I picked him. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't wait to be selected? No. This time I, you know, and... And that was such a huge thing for me because I'd always just, well, whoever likes me, that 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 must be it, you know? Like you were lucky to have somebody pick you, so you got to you had to be with them? Yeah. And this time I was like, no, no, no. I'm gonna pick the one that I want. Um and and I like to tell him that and he laughs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps he's flattered too. Right, right. I'm guessing he chose you too. Well, yeah. Yeah, I do. Ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we met online on Meet Mindful and fell in love. And uh, it's a very different relationship. I don't think we could have found each other before. I needed to find myself in order for us to to meet. I think this is this codependent pattern that I had, um, that, that my husband and I had and that I had with a lot of people. It was either me, me trying to save someone else or them trying to save me. And it just doesn't mm. work. We, 
we need to have the belonging in ourselves in order to have a healthy relationship with someone else. That's a good thing to take note of. (laughs) It's a really good thing to take note of. Well, Out of Love, Finding Your Way Back to Self-Compassion by Marianne Ingheim. Marianne, I wish you every kind of success with this book and, and not just in, in mental health awareness month, but every month of every year to stay connected to yourself and to help others to do the same is, is in my book, a heroic act. So I thank you for this book. I wish you every kind of success with it. Thank you so much, Betsy. My chat with Marianne Ingheim really put a light on something that I think is something that we banter about in a casual way. We talk about self-criticism and flogging ourselves and putting ourselves down, and writers and artists often talk about their inner critic. And it's become almost a colloquialism, but when you really think about it, when you really, really think about it, I wonder how much trouble in the world is caused because of self-loathing. People that act badly in the world because they feel badly about who they are. I wonder how many people have put up with terrible relationships, abusive relationships, because they felt like they deserved it, because that's what they've been telling themselves they deserve. I wonder how much harm is done to others because of anger that we've stuffed in at ourselves and we take it out on others. So this notion of self-compassion, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> self-compassion, you know, it's really as simple as this. When I have done it myself too, but when I hear a friend talk badly about herself, put herself down because of how much she weighs or how old she is or whether she thinks she's stupid or klutzy or any of those things, I think, gosh, if you heard me saying that to somebody else, you'd think I was cruel. And yet we allow this self-cruelness, this self-abuse, and it just does harm. So I want to really make a practice of not putting myself down with my words or my thoughts. I invite you to do the same and to exercise what Marianne talked about, about that self-compassion that we get to recognize ourselves as valuable, as worthy of love and care, prosperity, and that we get to be connected with each other in our common humanity. So yeah, we want to be nice to other people, but the extra bloom for me, I think I'm going to be nice to me today, and I'm going to try to do that in an ongoing way. I'm so glad that you've listened today to the Morning Glory Project, and I appreciate your time. If you're so compelled, if you've liked this story or any of the others that we've aired, it sure does help if you let other people know. Circulate these out in your social media, write a review, give a recommendation. It sure helps. And after that, I invite you, wherever you are, to find a beautiful way to bloom. <laughs>